really good life to be here. I'm, I'm very excited. Uh, I'm going to talk not, I'm even going to continue, uh, we're going to start the theme of descent early by, I'm going to include a word that Diana's not a fan of, but I'm going to have the L word in there. I'm going to talk about computing education as a foundation for 21st century literacy. And I'm going to defend myself, I hope, um, and explain what I mean by support for literacy. I'm not saying that we need to teach everyone computing as a thing to teach. I'm thinking that we teach everybody computing because it allows people to learn other things better. So this is Mark Guzdial. He's a professor in the College of Engineering at the University of Michigan. This is his talk, captured at Code and Beyond, a New York City conference for computer science and education at Cornell Technion. By C.P. Snow. Um, when I was a PhD student, my advisor, Elliot Soloway at the University of Michigan, made all of his PhD students read this. Uh, C.P. Snow was a scientific advisor to the UK government during World War II, and he wrote this book afterward because he was bemoaning the fact that he saw a split in Western culture between what we would now call STEM disciplines and the humanities perspective. That he didn't see that the humanities perspective appreciated the benefits of STEM, and STEM didn't always consider the humanities perspective. Now, by the way, C.P. Snow blamed this all on the humanities, but we're not going to go there. Uh, the reason why Elliot made us all read this was exactly the issue that Deputy Mayor Thompson was talking about, those people who don't understand why somebody would be just interested in basketball. Elliot wanted us to read the two cultures to think about who needs or could really use what we have to offer, but isn't going to come into our classroom because they have a completely different worldview and don't see the value of, of what it is that we have to offer. Guzdial's a really important piece of this Rubik's Cube that is contemporary thought on computer science education. This talk is an important appetizer to the forthcoming episode, where Professor Guzdial and I dig into some of the topics he alludes to here. You'll notice that the audio I intentionally made to sound like a hollow lecture hall to bring you closer to the milieu where such talks typically occur. That's not true. Sometimes a venue has technical hiccups, and this one caught the audio but didn't get a great recording. That's okay, though. I'm grateful to have what we could get. If you're fired up about the talk, I'll link to the video in the show notes where you'll be able to see some of the visuals he was sharing. It was a terrific talk, and if you can't tell from his introduction, Mark is one in a line of thought leaders who have fought hard to help us stay motivated in answering the tough questions around technology and learning. Is coding a critical 21st century literacy? Yes, he says, because it helps us learn everything else better. My tremendous thanks to Diane Levitt of Cornell Tech, who helped make this talk and my interview with Mark a possibility, and for throwing a top-notch event where this and much more dialogue like it can take place. Find show notes at nosuchthingpodcast.org and do me a favor, tell your friends about the show. Enjoy. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. So here's my story today. Um, I'm going to actually make a historical argument. Uh, is the here? Yeah, excellent. Um, we, we, we bonded over being history geeks uh, last night. Um, I'm really interested in the history of computer science and the history of computing education. I'm going to start out by making an argument that computer science was actually invented in order to teach everyone about computing as a form of literacy. 
I'm then going to go through some of the debate that we were talking about on Twitter uh, a few weeks ago, and in particular, try a new argument out on all of you about why computing education is a foundation for 21st century literacy. And then I want to give you a couple of examples about how computing education might change if we took seriously the idea of computing education as a way of coming to know other things. So first, I want to offer some definitions. What do I mean by these things? So computer science, I really like the definition that Alan Curlis, Alan Newell, and Herb Simon came up with in 1967. It is the study of computers and all the phenomena associated with them. And sometimes when I put this up, computer science professors say, no, no, okay, fine. You can have your own definition. I think we can agree about computing, though. Computing was defined by Peter Denning to be an umbrella term, including computer science, software engineering, information technology, information systems, a wide variety of computing-related disciplines. And then for me, programming, and that's one we're going to touch on several times this morning, is about the reading and writing of a notation of computation, a specification of the computer's process. So this guy invented the term computer science. His name is George Forsyth. He is a, a mathematics professor at Stanford. And in particular, what was striking to me is that he defined the words computer science in 1961 in the Journal of Engineering Education. Yeah, computer science was defined in an education context. A few years later, in 1967, he made the argument that the most valuable parts of a STEM education are, quote, the general purpose mental tools which remain serviceable for a lifetime. I read natural language and mathematics is the most important of these, and computer science is the third. Computer science was defined to be the third leg of STEM literacy. In 1961, the MIT Sloan School held, held a symposium on computers in the world of the future. This was a who's who of everybody uh, in computer science in uh, 1961. Alan Knowles there, John McCarthy, Grace Hopper. Um, in 1962, Martin Greenberger came out with this book, which was a transcription of all the lectures and all the discussions. Um, I want to talk in particular about Alan Perlis's lecture. Uh, one of his discussions was JCR Linklider. Now, you may, you may quibble whether BitSurfer Al Gore is the father of the internet. It is very clear J.C.R. Linklater was the grandfather of the internet. It was his idea. All right? So this is Alan Perlis. Alan Perlis started computer science at both uh, Yale and Carnegie Tech. He was the first ACM Turing Award winner, sort of the Nobel Prize of computer science. He made the argument in his lecture that we should be teaching computer science to everybody and that everyone should learn to program. Okay, 1961. And he made this argument saying that computer science is the study of process, and everybody cares about process. And what computers particularly allowed us to do was to automate process. He talked about how the economics department at Carnegie Tech was starting to run national economic simulations. Before that, economics was not an experimental science, or at least I hope it wasn't. Let's see value of the dollar tomorrow, just to see what happens. But when you have a simulation, it changes the nature of things. He was really foreseeing computational science and engineering in 1961. When we, most of us think about computing for everybody, and computing is a tool to think about, we think about this guy, Seymour Papert. Seymour Papert invented the logo turtle. I want to particular point out, uh, Gary Steger shared this picture with me, that uh, this is also includes pictures of Wally Burzine, who was actually the inventor of Logo, and Cynthia Solomon, who worked with Seymour throughout the development of Logo, and in particular, the, the major invention of Logo, which was the Logo Turtle. For Seymour, he claimed that children can learn to program, and learning to program can affect the way that they learn everything else. What a powerful idea. If you learn computing, it changes the way that you think about everything that you, that you know already. 
This is when I come into the story, the part that, that most hooked me. Um, I was a, uh, an intern at Bell Labs in 1982 when I first read the paper Personal Dynamic Media by Alan Kay, which uh, Alan was inspired by Seymour Papert, and he had this vision that the computer was human's first meta-media. It's the first medium that can be all other media. It can be poems and prose and video and music, and we can do musical notation, and we can design circuit diagrams. And it just sense, how many people have seen this picture before? A handful of people. This is the first desktop user interface. This is 1974. They invented the desktop user interface at Xerox Park, Alan Kane's group, in order to realize this vision. The computer as a medium, computing as a way of thinking about the world. Alan wrote that computer literacy is contact with the activity deep enough to make the computational equivalent of reading and writing, reading and writing fluent and enjoyable. Now, I want to think about that for a minute. Everybody knows that you use reading and writing as a way of coming to, to getting new knowledge, right? As a way of understanding our world. Um, but there are people who study reading and writing for itself, but you don't have to. We use reading and writing as, as a way of coming to know. Andy DeSessa invented the term computational literacy. And he was particularly interested in what would the medium look like if you wanted to teach from kindergartners on up Computing is a way of knowing something else. And uh, that's where he invented Boxer. That's pictures of Boxer here. He meant this to be a medium for kindergartners to learn about computing, and so could adults as well. His students did some of the fundamental work on understanding the, a key question here. So why code? If I teach you code, how does it help you understand anything better? So he had a student, Bruce Sharon, who asked this really interesting question. How is code different when learning physics? So we had groups of students, and one group of students learned this equation. I'm sure that everyone who's took physics has seen this. You may be trying to forget it now. This is a basic equation from kinematics. It describes position is based on initial position plus velocity times time plus one-half acceleration times time squared. So when you learn from equations, you learn a sense of balance. If I give you all but one of those equations, you can figure out the other equation, right? Okay, that besides balance out. What, what Bruce was showing is that if I teach you the same thing with code, you learn something different. So that middle box there is actually the same equation. For each tick of the clock, change the velocity by the acceleration, change the position by the velocity, forward the velocity and make a dot, we get this falling object. Okay? It's doing the same thing, but it's, it's describing it in a different way. I taught something similar in my dissertation work, and I asked the student, you're top of a two-story building and you drop a rock. How long does it take to get to the ground? I'm going to leave this just for a moment and let you look at it for a few seconds. I hope that this convinces you this kid ain't solving the equation. He's running the loop. He's running a simulation in his head. Code is causal. Code helps us to see why one thing causes another thing. That's a powerful thing. It's a powerful idea that mathematics alone doesn't give us. It's something that we can get from code. It's a unique thing that we can get from code. So why computation as literacy? Um, computing is a causal specification of process that can be automated. That's a really powerful idea. Alan Kay told us about that it's about enjoyable fluency, and Seymour told us it can affect the way it learns everything else. I have here the line, the master simulator. And that's actually a really key idea here. Um, how many people here saw the imitation game? Excellent. All right. Um, so Alan K. wrote in 91, the computer is the greatest piano ever invented, for it is the master carrier of representations of every kind. The heart of computing is building a dynamic model of an idea through simulation. 
People who know computer science theory know that the imitation game is a little bit of a, of a joke, it's a pun. The powerful idea that Turing had, that Alan Turing had, is that any computer, any powerful enough computer, a universal Turing machine, can be any other computer. The master power of a computer is to be a simulation, to be a mimic, to simulate anything else. That's key in my argument about why computational literacy, I mean, why computational literacy is a literacy for the 21st century. So, let's talk about computational thinking. Uh, originally, the definition is by uh, Seymour Papert. Seymour said it appears in chapter eight of Mindstorms. Thank you to Shuchi Grover who pointed that out to me. Jeanette Wayne popularized it. She made the argument that knowing about algorithms and computer architecture, things, well, knowing about algorithms and computer architecture would influence your everyday thinking. And she has this diagram on abstracts and automation. I don't think anybody believes this anymore. I don't think we have any evidence that knowing about algorithms and abstractions will automatically transfer to your everyday life. Okay? <coughs> Shuchi Grover pushes back and says there's, there's two other views of computational thinking. There's Jeanette's view, but there's two other views. There's the idea that computational thinking is a set of thinking skills for CS classrooms, but while you're learning programming, it's about saying, by the way, this relates to other things in the world. And then she says the other way of thinking about computational thinking is that it's a thinking skill problem solving approach that you can apply outside of computer science. Okay. I want to push on something more fundamental than that. First, I want to highlight some of the tough research questions that Ben Shapiro raised in that, twi that Twitter uh, conversation that Diane mentioned earlier. If abstractions are key to computational thinking, what happens when you use abstractions somewhere else? Is it also computational thinking? And how can we really talk about things like algorithms without a language? Can we talk about debugging without a language? Language invented to make conversations easier. Isn't programming the conversation about algorithms and debugging? How can we do this without that? We're going to talk more about these later. All right, so here's the part where I'm going to try something new that I haven't tried before on an audience based on, on, on Diane's encouragement to think harder about computational thinking. This is the definition of computational thinking from ISTE and CSTA. It's a wall of text. Let's ignore it for a minute. Let me just, I want you to believe one thing though, that we can do this. That we can use computing to teach these skills. That's key to this. Okay, you gotta believe that we can teach computational thinking. So um, I wanna abstract out these ideas from here. That I take these things to say that what we do in computational thinking is we specify problems, we use automation, we organize and analyze data, we represent data, we use models and simulations, we explore a wide range of solutions, and we care a bit about efficiency and effectiveness of problem solving. This is the definition of engineering thinking from the Royal Academy of Engineering in the UK. Uh, it's, it's a wall of text, but if we start looking at pieces of this, I think we see a lot of the same language as we just saw computational thinking. But what engineering thinking is about is specification of problems. No engineer in the room is going to disagree with that. Um, organizing and analyzing data, representing that data, using models and simulations. Engineers do this all the time. Exploring a range of solutions, and they care a lot about efficiency and effectiveness in problem solving. I love the phrase that the, uh, uh, the, the engineering thing is about making things that work and making things work better. Okay. Here's scientific thinking. Okay, it comes from uh, Joe Krejcik, uh, uh, Krejcik in America, 2012. It's based on the K-12 um, science framework. 
And again, if we look at the things that they're identifying, I see a lot of the same themes that we saw in the engineering thinking from the computational thinking. It's about specification of problems, organizing and analyzing data, data representation, use of modeling and simulation, exploring a range of solutions. Like Greg, I'm really inspired by Bootstrap. In my work now in Michigan, I'm trying to explore the role that computer science can play in improving social studies. Okay? And lo and behold, I discovered from one of my collaborators, there is something called historical thinking. Historical thinking is about trying to find a problem, interpreting the evidence, identifying cause and consequence, using multiple perspectives. I mean, it's probably not a surprise to you that I see these same sets of blocks. This is again the things that we believe that we can teach through computational thinking. My argument is that computing is a medium for teaching all of these ways of thinking. That what computing offers us is a literacy because it is the master simulator. We can use computing to look like engineering or history or mathematics. It can be any of those things. And in so doing, we're teaching all of these 21st century skills. Because this list on the right, that's what I'm claiming is 21st century literacy. And computing education allows us to get there. OK, I'll go back. There you go. Dan, did you want to get a real question? I did. I wanted to make sure. There you go. <laughs> Certainly. OK. So Diane will push back, as she did last night, and said, can we do this? Do we know how to do this? I mean, there's Bootstrap. Bootstrap rocks. CT STEM at Northwestern is thinking about how do we use computer science to achieve NGSS skills. Super important. We know that we can do this some at the adult stage. Uh, the software carpentry effort is trying to reach computational scientists and engineers. People who did learn computer science before but are now saying, you know, I need this. Because we actually know from a lot of data that for every professional software developer in the world, there are four to nine more people, like the councilman, who are programming but aren't professional software developers. They're doing something else with their main job. Okay, so what would it look like to teach computing as literacy to absolutely everybody? I'm going to offer you two examples. Okay, here's the first one. The first one, I need you all to pretend you're my freshman for a few minutes. I teach a class, I have taught a class at George Decker many years about digital media called media computation. Imagine that I am now going to teach you all something about sound. It's the first day of class on sound. Okay. So the way that sound works is that my vocal cords right now are bouncing against air molecules. Air molecules are really elastic. So as they bounce together, there's an increase in air pressure, and then they bounce apart, and there's a decrease in air pressure. And we can trace the increase and decrease of air pressure. When it does that and that, that's one cycle. Um, a above middle C is 440 cycles per second. We talk about the frequency. So how often it goes up and down, that's the frequency. We hear frequency. The height is the amplitude, that's the volume. And if you're anything like my freshman, you're now asleep. So let me try this another way. Okay, this is measuring the air pressure as it hits the microphone on this laptop right now. Oh. Ignore the amplitude, really hard to control volume when doing something like this. But look at the, 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 the thickness of the waves. How does it differ when I do This is the interactive portion of the program. That's <laughs> <laughs> the waves. They're getting thinner wet. Higher pitch, thinner waves. Thinner waves, more waves, more cycles per unit time. Higher pitch, higher frequency, 
lower zone, lower pitch, fatter waves, fewer waves, lower frequency, lower pitch. Okay, that's the relationship between them. One of the things that I just told you the computational thinking is good for is multiple representations. Look at this another way. This right now is doing a fast Fourier transform. If you don't know what a fast Fourier transform is, don't worry about it. I don't either, but I know how to do it. <laughs> Frequency increases from left to right. And you'll notice that any normal sound actually has a lot of sounds in it. There's a lot of frequencies in it combined together. Uh, a, a whistle is almost a perfect sine wave. It's one, it's one spike there. Okay, but normal sounds are a lot of different things together. But one thing that's particularly interesting is musical sound. Sounds that sound to us like, like singing or playing have a, a fixed number of overtones. <clears throat> oh, do. It turns out that all musical instruments that humans like tend to have the same set of overtones. They're not exactly the same, but the same patterns of overtones, and the pattern is unique to the musical instrument. So the way that a harmonica sounds is different than the way that a ukulele sounds. But it's harder to see, right? Because the strings decay, and so you lose the overtones right away. So here's another way of looking at this, yet another representation. This is a sonogram view. The frequency increases from top to bottom, and the darkness is how much energy is at that frequency. Sort of audio etch-a-sketch. Now we can see those overtones really well. including the ones that decay. Okay. So I'm hoping everybody has a little bit of sense now about how sound works. Okay, so we now have the sound that's going all over the place, up and down. How do we turn this into a bunch of numbers that we can put into the computer? The way we're going to do this is by taking samples. Um, you did this in interval calculus a million years ago, but again, you probably tried to forget about it. Okay, we can take measurements of the air pressure, that's a sample, and if we sample really, really often, like 44,100 samples per second, we actually capture everything that we do in here from here. All right, so what we have is a series of numbers, which are basically measures of the air pressure. <laughs> okay. So here's the sound is a test. A little bit of a lag, let me do that again. This is a test. So what we're actually seeing is a graph of those air pressures. This is a test. Okay, you can really make out where the words are, right? If I put a cursor here, play before. This afterward is a test. Okay, how would I make this sound bigger? Remember, it's the amplitude that's bigger. And all I've got is a bunch of numbers, some of which are positive, some of which are negative. Lower. What's that? Lower. Go lower, actually I want to make the wave bigger, because that's going to increase the volume, right? Okay, so here's a piece of code that I, I wrote to do this. For each sample, each one of those numbers, in that list of numbers, get the value out, and put the value back multiplied by four. All the positive numbers become a bigger positive numbers, all the negative numbers become bigger, uh, bigger negative numbers. So I'm going to apply that code, yes, I'm coding live in front of you. Increase volume T. Explore T. 
Here was the original one. This is a test. Here's the new one. This is a test. See louder? Okay, I saw not all of you were convinced. So spelling again and again. And now we're gonna explore the sound. Okay. This is a test. I hope I've convinced you all that it's fine. Okay. So um, the very first time that I did this, I want to go back and get my sound without being messed up again. Okay, play that and convince you that it's original. This is a test. The very first time I taught this, someone in the back of the room, it's always somebody in the back of the room, says, what if you set all of the sample values to the largest value, like 32,600 something? What would happen? Because the range is between negative positive and negative 32,000. I said, well, if you set them all to that value, you hear nothing. Because we hear changes in air pressure. It's got to be an increase and decrease air. So you set them all the same, it won't do anything. But I said, I'll make you a deal. I wanted to teach if statements anyway. <laughs> Here's a piece of code that I wrote for you. We're going to maximize the volume. For each sample, if it is at all positive, make it the largest possible positive value. And if it's at all negative, make it those, the, the largest absolute value, negative value. Okay? So maximize T. Explore T. Okay. Here was my original sound. This is a test. Before I press this button, <laughs> what are we going to hear? Tones? One tone. It's going to be broken up. A broken up single tone. Other things? Other predictions? Go ahead. It's going to be loud. It's going to be loud. I'll bet you're right. What's that? White noise. White noise. I think that's the technical term. Okay. At this point, even though sitting in the back currently on, uh, on Facebook or Reddit, I want everybody in the room to make a prediction based on a single question. When I hit that button, will we hear the words, this is a test? If you think, no way, give me a thumbs down. If you think we are going to hear the words, give me a thumbs up. I am requiring everybody in the room to make a prediction, including Mr. Cameraman, please. Really, everybody. If you have to hang in for just a minute, just a minute hanging in there. Okay, hold on, hold on. This is a test. At your thumb. Why can we hear the words, this is a test? I trust that it did, or I will play it again. Why can we hear the words, this is a test? Someone who had a thumbs up. Why do you think we hear it? What's that? JavaScript code, yeah. You know enough about code. Yes? Maybe because it's your origin was the original sample, and so that sample was preserved in your... It's true, but what part was preserved? Yeah. The frequency. Yes! <laughs> frequency. We just changed the volume as much as you possibly can, but where it goes up and down stayed exactly the same. Okay, so. So that was increased volume, that's maximized sound. So, first of all, why do I make everybody in the room do predictions? Because I draw a lot on physics education research, and Eric Mazur has this wonderful set of experiments he's run where he teaches kids one of four ways. I'm going to give you a demo, because demos are cool in physics. So you get fire, weights, water, all kinds of stuff. Version two, no demo at all. You just study from the textbook. Version three, I'm going to give you a demo, but first you must write down a prediction about what's going to happen. Version four, you write down the prediction, and then afterward you talk with the person next to you. 
Okay? Talking with the person next to you doesn't seem to matter all that much. It's the prediction. Making a prediction and seeing something wrong. The really interesting thing is which group does the worst? The ones who get the demo without the prediction. Because afterward, two weeks later, they remember what they thought they would see. So people don't actually have a photographic memory. Remember things in terms of your model of the world. So unless you change your model of the world, you don't actually learn something. I made you predict so that two weeks later, you couldn't say, nah, I couldn't really hear anything. No, no, you all know. You heard it. Okay? Second part. This is seven lines of code. I didn't teach you anything about computer science, but you all know something more about the human ear. I just taught you something about how you understand speech. Seven lines of code taught you more about what it means to be human. Isn't that kind of cool? Third part, computer scientists in the room, how many bits do I need to record completely intelligible speech? One. There's only two values in this file. There's positive and negative, the largest possible values. One bit is all you need to record speech. You know how many places you can hide a bit inside of a picture, inside of a word processing document, anywhere else? Okay, it's a really powerful idea. But here's the one that I think is really most interesting for our debate and for this general notion of computational thinking. I trust that you all feel that you learned something from this. And you learned it from programming, but not a single one of you wrote any code. Code is a powerful notation for process, even if you're just reading it. You don't actually have to write the code for programming to be powerful for learning. Second example. Oh, so we teach CS for literacy to better understand our role in ourselves. One of the big challenges in teaching computer science, perhaps what uh, Dean Marceau was describing, we're talking about people dropping out from CS1 to CS2, is that students get flustered with how much stuff we dealt on them in computer science. We have this quote back from 1990, you've taught me so many details, I don't know which ones to use when. So Richard Catterbone tried to address this problem when he was teaching about uh, statistics and chemistry and mathematics in the past, and he invented this way of teaching called sub-goal labeling. On sub-goal labeling, I'm going to not just give you a list of steps, I'm going to break them into, uh, into pieces. So on the right is a list of steps of something you might do in Agile Center to achieve a goal. On the left is the exact same steps, but I'm going to first tell you this group of steps does this. It defines variables from buildings. This next group of steps handles events from my blocks. Okay? Pretty simple change. We can do this with videos as well. Network. Oops. Ah. Just trying to control from here. And what we're going to want is a button that has a picture of a fortune teller in it. So we'll drag a button over from the basic palette. And under the properties, we'll change the text for the button, clear that out, and set an image for it. So we'll add an image. Okay, I think that looks like every other screencast you've seen for things like App Inventor, Scratch, or anything like that. Here's the version with subgoals. And what we're going to want is a button that has a picture of a fortune teller in it. So we'll drag a button over from the basic palette. And under the properties, we'll change the text for the button, clear that out, and set an image for it. So we'll add an image. I'm going to trust that everyone agrees this is a relatively small change. We've added some headings to text description. We've added a text callout. All right, so this is work by Lauren Marjolu, uh, a PhD student at, at, at Georgia Tech, now a professor at uh, Georgia State. And so she ran an experiment 
We have two groups. One group is going to get instructions and videos all with the out-the-sun goals, the same stuff that the original screencast, the original list of instructions. The other ones are going to get the same things, but with the sub-goal labeling inserted. And we're going to run an experiment. First, you're going to watch a video. I'm going to give you the text instructions as well. And then I'm going to ask, can you do that? Can you do what you just saw? Go away for a week. Come back. Can you still do what you saw a week ago? And now I'm going to show you a second video. And now I'm going to ask you to build a third app, one that you haven't built before. That's the transfer test. Okay? So learning, can you do it immediately afterward? Understanding. Retention, can you do it a week later? And then transfer, can you do something new with what I just showed you? Oops. Okay. Immediately afterward, the group that gets subgoal labels attempts more steps and they get more correct, statistically significant. Go away. Come back a week later. They don't attempt more, but they get more correct. The reason, part of the reason why they don't attempt more is the people who don't get subgoal labels are thrashing. I wonder if this block does anything. I wonder if this block does anything. They're pulling out a lot more blocks, but they're not necessarily getting anything right. Retention, on transfer, they blow them out of the water. The general finding is that this small change results in better learning, better retention, and better transfer. It is a small change. What's really cool is that Lauren and Brianna Morrison have shown that the effect is twice as large for high school teachers. All of our previous experiments were with the psych pool, generally sophomores and undergraduates in psychology or taking a psychology class. This works even better with high school teachers, and it works with text languages, too. A lot of the work that's been going on in my group recently, the last few years, has been exploring the efficiency and effectiveness of computing education. If we're going to teach computing to everybody, we don't want to lose them between CS1 and CS2. We have to figure out a way of retaining them. We've got to make sure that they actually learn. The argument I want to make is we can make computing education better. We do know how. There's Barbara's wonderful work with Parsons problems. If you're not familiar with the Parsons problem, imagine I give you a programming problem, and I give you all the lines of code which correctly solve it, but they're on refrigerator magnets, so you've got to put them in the right order. Turns out, Barbara has shown, you learn as much as if you wrote the code from scratch. It's a pretty powerful way of learning, and it's much less time, much less uh, frustration, much higher self-efficacy afterward. Work examples, in general, we make students program too much. Reading more code is better than writing more code. It leads to better learning. Um, pair programming, having students work together, improves self-efficacy, improves sociability around programming. My work in media computation, which you just saw a little bit, the audio stuff is from that, is where I have students manipulate pixels of a picture and samples of a sound in order to learn programming. And it's about recognizing that programming is more about uh, computing, it's about communication as much as calculation. Digital media, knowing how it works, knowing how to put it together. How, what does an Instagram filter do? This is all part of figuring out how to teach computing to everybody efficiently and effectively. Let me wrap up with a call to action. The first thing that we need to do is find our allies. If we want computing across the curriculum, we have to talk to everybody across the curriculum. We have to talk to people who aren't computer scientists, who aren't just thinking about computing, because they know the stuff that we don't. We can't be experts in everything. And we have to learn from everyone we can. I draw a lot on physics and mathematics, education research, educational psychology, and learning sciences. Does anybody in the room know what this is? No guesses? Yeah? I think you're going to be able to attack using your piano keyboard. Very close. The critical part is the tape. This is a telegraph machine. Okay. So 
it's such an anachronism now to see this. First of all, because telegraph machines, but that's not the critical part. You're typing text with a piano keyboard? Why? Okay, I want you to think this out with me for a little bit. The very first uh, printing telegraph machines date from 1840. QWERTY keyboard was patented in 1868. For about 30 years, if you had a brilliant idea, and it's a really cool idea, ooh, to type a key, to type a letter, I just want to press a key. Key to letter, key to letter. What a great idea. Well, what's the keyboard going to be? It's going to be a piano keyboard. Because that's what the common keyboard was for over 30 years. What if we don't have our QWERTY keyboard yet? And I don't mean the one that's on your laptop right now. I mean, analogously. What if we don't know the critical ideas that are going to make it possible to teach computing to absolutely everybody? We may still be waiting for our QWERTY keyboard. Maybe it's block-based languages. Maybe it's something else. But we have to be open to those other great ideas. And how much better would we all be off if we had adopted even something better than QWERTY? The other really big idea that I really draw a lot from Sri Ramakathy's work is that we need to invent, evolve, and, and, and mutate. We need new languages, new tools, new curricula. Um, we can't just assume everything can be solved with Scratch. No, it's on Scratch. Scratch is wonderful, but it isn't for everything. We need to invent new things and not just replicate, mutate, and evolve. People who are in software engineering know the software engineering community gave up on visual programming languages. They just don't work. Well, until they do, for Scratch, for Blockly, for App Inventor, they really do. They don't work for everything. We're going to have a lot of new uses for programming. And we have to think about building more and trying more so that we involve everyone, not just those who are currently at the table. I have a lot of collaborators on this work. Barbara Erickson was recognized. Um, uh, let me end there, and let's thank you very much for your time. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, an Ithaca bomber, an engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. This show would not be possible without the support from the good people at Mouse a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org.